Now, I I enjoy doing this podcast, but I have a secret other life in jazz. I've been involved in the London jazz radio station, Jazz FM, for many a long year. And I used to have a program in the middle of the night where I played music from the farther, the farther reaches of music. And I've been... Um, enjoying a book by Richard Collada called Holy Ghost, The Life and Death of Free Jazz Pioneer Albert Isler. Now, Albert Isler is not to everybody's taste. Would you accept that, Richard? Oh, definitely. My girlfriend doesn't even like me playing his stuff. Um, and what is it that makes you like it? Is it the same stuff that makes other people hate it? Correct. Correct. I used to play Coltrane records and when I was a kid. My I was 15 and my mom literally went ballistic. Now, this book, uh, uh, writing a biography of Albert Eiler, you must have been working on this for years because you've been trawling through source material. This is a long job, isn't it? Uh, it was, but I also had a day job. Uh, up until I retired in 2011, I worked at a library. I worked at a, I had a gig at a radio station, courtesy of the library, because what happened is um, one time we had um, the GM of this college station, WCSB, was at the, um, we were having a farewell party for somebody. And I said, well, I, I missed about the old days of freeform radio. And he says, well, why don't you apply? And he actually dragged me into the station one time when I was doing some other work and had me do it. And so I got on CSB. I used to, um, I didn't have my own show. I used to be the second banana to a shock shop. And <laughs> I had my own little gig called Dial. I was Corleone the Psychic. Dial a Seance was one of my gigs. And, um, but then I had my own show, which was Count Lapone's Jazz from Outer Space Makeout Hour. And I would play all the freeform stuff, whatever I felt like playing. And so subsequently, I am a inverted I'm a big book collector, almost say hoarder for some reason, but I would go to old library sales where they discard the books for 50 cents or a dollar. And I was at the Middleburg Heights Library sale. And I found the book of Encyclopedia of Jazz in the 70s by um or 60s, one of the two, by Leonard Feather. And it actually had, I was thumbing through it and it had Donnie's phone number in it. Yeah. And Donnie, that's Donald Isla, Albert Isla's brother. And I asked him if he'd want to be on the show. And he was floored. Anyone remembered him. And he gave me the idea to do the book. Originally, it was supposed to be a joint project. But let's put it this way. All the interviews, he did. He was pretty good at interviewing because he could repeat the same interview he gave to somebody else 10 years earlier as if it was he hadn't committed as if to memory. It was new. <laughs> as if it was new. The Robert Rush interview, I didn't get anything new from that. I did not already know. He kept bragging about how great he was. And he never offered any pictures, any really good memorabilia. I mean, I think the only thing I knew about that that he offered was the story about how Spirits Rejoice was recorded when they were on heroin and uh, the thing about Albert's um, illegitimate son. But he wanted to do the book and I agreed, but he, his idea of a book was something like 40 pages he could pass out at, you know, at jazz concerts and uh, it was not uh, something I, um, I was, and, you know, originally my book was a lot longer. And fortunately, thanks to Jawbone Press, they edited it. They made what sounded like a doctoral dissertation. Right. <laughs> Let me ask you, um, having spent so much of your life um, interfaced with Albert Eiler, 
Where do you put him on the spectrum of talent? Okay, I think he was a great talent, but he had sort of um, a different vision of what music should be, namely the sound. And that is why I respect his talent. Um, he was a great talent. I mean, he could play when he was a kid. They called him Little Bird. And he, uh, ironically, Donnie could play better than him on the saxophone. Yeah, this is Donnie. This is his brother. Right. Yeah. And he, he could play far better than Albert on the phone. Donnie, um, ironically, Albert, I do consider him a great talent because he influenced so many. Ironically, it was not in jazz, but it was in, it was in rock musicians, as I wrote in my preface. Patti Smith, Tom Verlaine. Now, I met Tom Verlaine about four years ago at a club, and I gave him the manuscript. And he talked to me for about 15 minutes about the, about what, about the book. And some jazz musicians like Pat Metheny also had a lot of respect because they would give them manuscripts when they'd be in town. Now, you, you mentioned Pat Metheny. Now, Pat Metheny once made a whole album of Ornette Coleman tunes. Now, is Albert Eiler a sort of a more extreme Ornette Coleman? Very far extreme. Because yes. <laughs> he saw, I mean, Coleman... Uh, Eiler, um, he just saw, some people say it was the religion that he had. Well, Coleman had some aspects of religion, but Eiler, I think, was a different influence. He was talking to God, as he once said. It, it's just his whole style. You listen to, as Robert Parker, I mean, Palmer, he was a critic for the New York Times when he said, you listen to some of these holy rollers, especially Blind Willie Johnson, you catch that whole talking in tongues business. But I do think Albert was far more extreme than anyone before or since. And so, so he's still ahead of his time. What year did he die? 1970. Yes, I thought so. And he was only in his 30s, wasn't he? 34. Yeah. So whatever he achieved, he achieved very early on. And um, if you look on Spotify and listen now, you go anywhere the music is still available and there's a lot of it. And there is still a lot more to be discovered. For oh, really? Example, well, Hat Hut has issued the Finnish concert, which I had, I had to buy from Finnish radio as a researcher because I used my doctor title in front of me when I ordered it through my faculty account. But um, so they have the, and they've issued the, um, Munich concert, which I did not know about. I mean, I put it in at the last second in the book. There is also 20 minutes of Lakav that I mentioned in the book. Because what happened is Stan Kane, who owned Lakav, he taped everybody surreptitiously. But Eiler was not a folk musician. And he only, as soon as he heard it, he just probably kept it for 20 minutes and um, didn't record anymore. So the rest of the Lakav was done through John Goldman. Ironically, the person who wound up with that tape was a member of the cramp was Nick Knox from the cramps. And he gave it to a friend of mine on his deathbed. So that thing is still available. Now it's fascinating because Tyler, as you read in the book, quit at Lakav because he didn't want to play, allegedly did not want to play with a um, with Michelle Samson. Now is, did he quit on a Saturday? Did he join on a Saturday or did he join on the Friday night? No one knows, and the tape will prove one way or the other if Tyler was in the band on Friday night. 
Um, I'm hoping that we're talking to some people who haven't heard Albert yet. Now, because of the wide divergency of music that's available, where should the beginner start? Where is he at his very best, do you think? Um, at his very best, it's the it's uh, probably, I would suggest, our prayer. Because the reason is, is that was Donnie's tune. And Santana liked it enough to record. So Eric, and therefore, you have a starting pace of a rock musician playing an Albert Eiler tune. And basically, that since you're familiar with it, since it, it's made, because a rock musician did it, it makes it acceptable. So I would say our prayer, also some of the standards he did on his first album, Summertime, definitely. Old Man River, because you can access the tunes and you know what they are. Yeah, and, and that proves that he could play because some people were saying, oh, he's a charlatan, he can't play. But those prove that he could play. Right, because that's then you get into the more further reaches of it where all the screeching. But the other thing, again, is having a wide diversion of musical tastes to listen to, uh, to um, things like Eiler. You know, you, if you listen to avant-garde rock, Captain Beefheart, you're already in the ballpark. And, <laughs> yeah. and same with... Uh, same with Tom Television. You're already in the ballpark. So I would sort of possibly um, suggest to um, listen to some rock musicians first that are avant-garde and then drift into Eiler. Yeah. Um, well, on this podcast, you can hear me talking to Captain Beefheart, and he loved wild atonal saxophone playing. So, right. so he would have liked Albert. Now, one of the connections with Albert Eiler that fascinates me is John Coltrane. Now, John Coltrane is still revered. In this country, we have a festival called Love Supreme after the Coltrane album. Now, what was it that John Coltrane saw in Albert Eiler, heard in Albert Eiler? Possibly a kindred spirit about the spirituality is, is my guess, because... Um, Obviously, Coltrane got into the religion stuff with Am and um, A Love Supreme. And Eiler spoke in the same religious vein that um, Coltrane was, um, how you say, uh, beginning to go to. Eiler grew up in that whole tradition of um, the gospel. His, grand, his maternal grandfather was a radio preacher. And they were... The father had converted to Pentecostalism around 1948, but Albert was still into the big Baptist tradition. And in America, sometimes, I mean, I'd gone to Baptist church services for family, I mean, descendants of friends. And it's pretty much like that. People get hauled off. They have nurses standing by to haul people off when they overreact to the, um, to the, um, the emotions, not like, um, you know, I grew up in the Methodist tradition. We never had that. And I know they didn't have it in Anglicanism. But it's it's fascinating about that. It's that ecstatic thing. Right. Did he find that the way to his ec ecstasy, if you like, was being self-consciously different? I mean, uh, th there are bits in your book where you talk about him wanting to appear with a, a whole army of bagpipers. Now, I mean, that just seems... <laughs> the the quick way to a headache but did he do things just because they were unusual 
I don't really know about, I know he said that to Daniel Koch in France. And it might have simply been he got the idea of a bagpipe and he focused on it. I mean, because obviously the guy, let's put it this way, the guy may have had some mental issues like his brother did. And I mean, it may have been genetically involved and he focused on something he found and then lost interest in it and moved on elsewhere. And it could have very well been that Donnie was some, um, you know, schizophrenic and ergo Albert was, and he was just never diagnosed. And so he focused on an issue and then dropped interest in it after he, he did it. I want to talk about that because anybody who ever reads anything about Albert Isla knows that he was found in the water in New York. But just before I go to that, being the uh, the partner of a gigging musician is hell on earth. Did Albert make good choices as to the ladies he spent his life with? Yeah, oh, wow, that's a tough choice. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Um, I know, well, Carrie, you read in the book how Carrie Roundtree, his mother threw her out of the house because she had a pre-existing daughter out of wedlock. Um, and so Arlene, she was a beauty queen from what I've heard from Donnie, but she could never understand what he was going through, that she expected him to be a star. And I've heard, you know, um, other people did that, you know, that they expected people to be a, that she expected him to be a star, and he wasn't. And she couldn't live with the poverty. It's not really that they can't understand, but they don't want to live with the poverty. Um, Mary Parks, for example, um, she had a day job. And by the way, Anna Westerman had a big family. She was loaded because her family owned all these um, timber mines and coal mines. But um, uh, Mary Parks was living off of her um, uh, money from uh, New York Bell, because she was worked at the at the Bell offices, and she was like I said, about 16 years older than Eiler. So in 1970, she would have been, you know, really high up. So did she? But uh, this way, she supported him in what he wanted to do, and she, even though I said she should have stayed off stage. Yes. Now, I, I mean, and she she performed and she wrote. But was she talented at that? And was Albert so uh, besotted with her that he didn't realize that she couldn't do it? Well, let's put it this way. He put Donnie in the band. and Donnie had not played trumpet at the time. So he, he gambled he could do it again. And he was probably, he needed her, I think he needed her as an emotional crutch on stage. I didn't put it in the book, but now that you brought it out, yes. He needed an emotional crutch and he put up with her music and her poems. Um, yes. Although, ironically, I do like music as the healing force of the universe for some reason. I like it. But as long as you, you know, you don't have to listen to the inane lyrics. But she, were they any worse than some of the other things that were coming out of people at the time trying to be relevant? Uh, one of the things that I like going to France for, and I'm closer to France than you are, is that they seem, the French are traditionally more open to the further reaches of music. Was Albert more appreciated and applauded here in Europe than he was in the US? Oh, obviously. Um, let's put it this way. After he came back from France, as you'll read in the penultimate chapter, he played a free gig in Springfield, Massachusetts. It was it barely attended. 
I mean, most of the people went there because it was free. So he was, he was not appreciated. He did not get the press coverage. I mean, for example, my book still has not been reviewed by the local Cleveland Plain dealer. You know, but its review is raved about in all these jazz presses. But he still is not appreciated. Um, the only one who um, did, ironically, was a, a Frenchman who wrote for the Plain Dealer and the Sea Magazine. His name was Bernard Loray, and his widow taught at um, Cleveland State. And he was planning to write a book. What happened is, unfortunately, he got shot by his mother-in-law. Um, he showed up drunk and up drunk and tried to get in the house, and she thought it was a prowler and wasted him. But he was planning to write the book. He was the only Caucasian at Albert's funeral. And he was a backer. He wrote for the uh, French jazz magazine. He wrote for the scene, and he wrote for the Plain Dealer. Well, I mean, we I have we have journalists here, Richard Williams. Um, I mean, he's quoted in your book as saying every note that Albert played is worth listening to. Right. Um, um, so there is there is support here, and it's in Rich, one of Richard's articles that I first read about your book and went off and bought it. Um, now, another thing about this is you say um, that there was only one Caucasian at his funeral. Was his blackness central to his art? No. It wasn't because he rejected, obviously, if it was central to his art, he would have played all black musicians. He faced a lot of, uh, as you read in the book, Ted Jones re really panned Bill Folwell and he, panned, he made a few anti-Semitic cracks about Michelle Samson. The only reason is that um, Bernard Leray was the only Caucasian at the funeral. It did not get any notice in any of the papers. It was um, mentioned as an afterthought in The Plain Dealer or I mean, on the same day, and he since he wrote for the Plain Dealer, he may have seen or the Cleveland Press, he may have seen that article and shown up, but it was very spar. I think fifty five people sparsely attended. It was because um, not that many people knew of it until after it had happened. And just while we're talking of funerals, Albert played at John Coltrane's funeral. Was that because Coltrane asked him to? Um. Well, didn't ask Albert because he didn't know he was dying, but he asked, yes. he did say that he wanted someone to play. He wanted Albert and Coleman to play at the funeral. So, yeah, he, I guess he, he relayed those decisions to um, Alice, who relayed them to Bob, um, what's his name? Um, the guy who, Bob Thiel. Yep. Um, who produced an album on Il Impulse, didn't he? Which, um, which I have. Now, what do we think about that album on Impulse? Love, well, love cry. Yeah, I like it actually. Um, now it's interesting with Thiel because Donnie, because the original one that was on Impulse, Live in Greenwich Village, that was tapes the band did, and then they leased, they sold them to Impulse. But it's interesting because Donnie was very bitter about Bob Thiel, and I did not put it in the book because, or maybe they shaved it out. Um, that he sold the rights to Our Prayer for fifty bucks or seventy five, depending on which how big bottles of beer he said he had. He sold it to Thiel, and he told them, he told me, and I, they made me take, I mean, I couldn't put it in the book. It's, um, he said, Albert said he took it up the ass with Bob Thiel, and Donnie said, and I was right behind him. So, but he, you know, he did realize that he got burned on it, the uh, Bob Thiel thing. And Thiel, shall we say, by, he committed corporate fraud, as far as I'm concerned, by, he should not have been double, you know, taking advantage of the artist that he was producing. But it was standard practice then. Sometimes if you produce someone, you got 
artists, you got composer credits like yes. Parker did. Yeah. But he did rip off Al Albert and Donnie to all. I mean, Donnie especially, because Donnie could have used the royalties from Our Prayer, or Donnie's widow could if I could ever find her. Right. And um, I mean, the, the the record company politics are fascinating because you you say that there was a time when John Hammond, um, the guy who gave us Bob Dylan, was chasing Albert for a for an album. So the amongst the record community, there was respect for him and a recognition that there was money to be made. Right, and I heard that from the Hammond story from Steve Tintweiss who played bass on uh, the French concert. Right. Which went so well. Right. Hammond was always ahead of the curve, basically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he rescued Bessie Smith when she was a, a forgotten. And he, he goes on to Billie Holiday. Oh, I, I meant to ask you about this as well, Richard. At the beginning of Albert Isler's career, you say that he played for a while with Little Walter. Now, I do a blues show on Jazz FM. I play Little Walter a lot. Now, Little Walter, great musician, not the nicest of men. Is there any recording available of Albert doing a solo with Little Walter? No, that was already discussed. In the, I know it's a British biography of Little Walter, and it said no. And see, there's also a whole bigness about the Little Walter business, about how he, um, he allegedly met played at Gleason's, but he never played at Gleason's. He played somewhere else down the road, but they hung out at Gleason's. So Albert did not join him at Gleason's. He just met him at Gleason's when they were screwing around. But um, no, there would not have been any recordings of Albert and um, little Walter together. I wish there were, but... Uh... Yeah, so do I. Yeah, okay. Another question. Albert got interested in UFOs. He got interested in... Flying saucers. Now, is this just a something that happened one night, or was he sort of seriously interested? They had their whole little, back in the early 60s, they had their little UFO club, and they'd meet downtown. Um, Donnie, Albert, Bobby Few would go. I think the um, Clyde Shy would go. They all hung out, and it was the fact, because you're close to me in age, we were, everyone was fascinated in the 60s. It just happened that one weird incident in Manaway where um, the, the cops chased the UFO into Pennsylvania. And ironically, that is not too far from my home. And there are people who actually, older people in my neighborhood who actually claim to have seen that flying saucer back in 66. So, but it was just probably a confirmation of what he always um, suspected. And he, he, I mean, Donnie would always call me whenever certain sci-fi movies were on. He loved them. Um, finally, Richard, what happened to Albert Eiler that meant that he ended up dead in the water in New in New York. Have you have you laid the the rumors and the plots to rest? Do you know what happened? I think I have because it was something I did not put in the book. But he even talked about suicide when he was in his early twenties because Clyde. I mean, this came out after the book and pretty much gone into the final edits and it was too late to put in. But Clyde Shy, who's now an imam, told me Albert talked about ending, not suicide, but finishing his life when he had every nothing left to do. And maybe he just thought that he um, did. But again, his mother was pressuring him 
the thing about the guns, you know, we have so much more with um, forensics today that we could have done. Like they could have traced the water currents, finding out where he went in. They could have, but he had exhibited signs, but some of it actually made sense. Like um, the business of walking around in a fur coat, it had to do with that. Um, he did that, he was an overdressed guy when he was a kid. But um, so basically, um, I think he did commit suicide because he talked about it for, for years about it before that. So this book is Holy Ghost, The Life and Death of Free Jazz Pioneer Albert Eiler. Um, but I think it's got relevance to other people's interests outside the rather narrow uh, area of free jazz. Richard Coloda, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so and much, too.